I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 77 on L. Sprague de Camp's The Clocks of Eraz. My name is Jeff, and joining me today is my unbeheaded co-host, Hoy. It's good to have a head on my shoulders. <laughs> and with us today as our special guest, we have the writer of Feast, co-editor of Honey and Hot Wax, the writer for adventures for games such as Spires, Eat Trash, Be Free, and Jiangxi. Uh, with us today is Xiaorong Biswas. Hi, thank you for inviting me. It's honored yes. to have you on. So uh, we're excited to have you on. Thank you. Uh, I guess what we, we often start by asking the cliche question, how did you get into gaming? So what is your origin story? Uh, so I, I've been playing games since I was very young, like most people in the current and the previous, not previous century, the end of the previous century. Um, but I started running, um, in the third grade on the bus home from school. I started running like storytelling, role-playing game style stuff with my friends. So I guess I've been a game designer since then. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in college, I took an undergraduate class with Mary Flanagan, the famous game designer. Uh, and that's what started me being like, oh, wait, people actually do, the games that we see around are, don't just grow on trees. People actually do this. And after I decided, after five years of um, engineering education, that I didn't want to do that anymore, uh, I went to grad school for interactive design. And uh, yeah, now I do games things. Very cool. Very cool. And what was your history with uh, fantasy literature? So I've been, I was into fantasy books from a very, very young age. So when I was really young, uh, I, for fun, I used to do this thing where I would, um, you know, play like pretend I'd like imagine fantastical things, but I would like do it very physically as and I would literally run around my house and jump off furniture and like make funny noises and not the, the, the physical things and the noise I was making were in no way related to what I was imagining. They were always, just, I need to move my body and make noise to mm -hmm. do this. And that annoyed my parents after a while. So my mom was like, you need to get into reading because you're like imagining stuff. And then there was a period where I read voraciously and my dad's like, oh my God, you read too much. You need to do more physical stuff. And I'm like, you need to like pick. You can't just <laughs> keep reading. Um, but from a very young age, I've been really, really into reading. And I've always been really into um, fantasy and sci-fi and speculative fiction in general. Uh, not comics as much, except for a little bit, but um, prose more. Um, and uh, it was in... Uh, yeah, it was then it was an undergrad that I actually started diversifying my reading. Like in undergrad, I'm like, oh, there are other things I can read as well. Um, but I, I've been into fantasy uh, speculative fiction for, from, for a long time. Now, did you grow up in a bilingual household or did you grow up? In... Uh, so I grew up trilingual okay. um, uh, at various degrees. Like I'm fluent in speaking Bangla, but I cannot read and write Bangla. Uh -huh. And I can comprehend Hindi very well, but I 
can't speak it as much because mm-hmm. I don't speak it as much. And English, I'm fluent in, and French, I'm fluent. Right. So I was wondering, do you had did you have access to any of the sort of the classics of you know South Asian literature? You know, whether in regular literary form or sort of adaptations so, and stuff like that. Unfortunately, not. So I grew up in the United Arab Emirates, right? So I didn't grow up in India, and my dad would read out some stories to us. He had these like fun classic. Uh, comic strips like comedy comic strips that he'd like go through with us and of course when i went back home my family would tell me stories and i'd watch like tv uh, but though at that time spec fic wasn't as huge in indian television as as in other uh, languages Mm -hmm. um so no i I didn't i i know you know obviously i was familiar with the like mythological stories right Right, like the mahabharata things like that i used to watch that with my grandpa the tv show and i i I hesitate to call that spec fic because it has like a whole religious angle to it right 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 um so uh those like mythological religious stories i knew but I, i didn't know i still don't really know unfortunately that much about South Asian contemporary speculative fiction. I know like mm-hmm. one or two authors who I'm friends with. That's it. Because um, obviously for someone who's growing outside of that culture, the Indian classics are mythology and more sort of epic fantasy. But I right, just think right. there's a religious component for someone who actually is growing up within that community. So then right. like I am non-religious. My family is non-religious. But like culturally, these are not considered speculative fiction, right? They're considered mm-hmm. semi-true stories or even right, right. to some people true so stories, not, right? Yeah, so, so it's not like, so it would be like, like, hey, Moses, badass of the Hebrews or something like that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, so so that, that was interesting. And also those are, uh, they also, I, I think myth- when you, when I say, when I say speculative fiction, I tend to not mean things that are thousands of years old, right? right? Like I wouldn't, I don't call um, the Odyssey fantasy fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, okay. maybe, and I don't have a leg to stand. I'm not like a scholar who has studied and, and has a, has a position about why I call things that. I just don't think of things that old as fantasy fiction. Sure. Sure. Now, in general, was the fantasy fiction you were reading kind of more contemporary or have you kind of, have you div- uh, do- have you explored much of the kind of the pre-1980, pre-Dungeons and Dragons fantasy literature? So when I was growing, when I was younger, it, it started out with like kids stuff, right? Like I read a lot of Enid Blyton, for example, when I was very young, right? Uh, and then when I, when I went into the older ages, I, I read more contemporary to that time stuff. Mm-hmm. So like when I was like 10, I started reading Animorphs. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then YA stuff. Um, I didn't ever read, because I also grew up outside of, uh, of America. I grew up in the, uh, in the Middle East, right? Where access to uh, books was different. Not, not, not there, but there were different books that were popular and things, right? Yes. Um, I never really got into the, whatever, Golden Age, Silver Age of those things. I read a couple, but all, like, for example, I've loved Dune, right? But that was um, in college where I read Dune. Um, so, uh, it was, it was mainly things that are contemporary to when I was alive. Uh, mm-hmm. even now I've only read a handful of the like older, like I, I haven't read like Rama or like, um, uh, what's the one they make in the TV show on Amazon, the, the giant space epic, uh, oh, uh, foundation, oh, foundation, foundation. Right, 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 right. I haven't read much of those. I read some of the later Dragonlance books, but not the oh that that is that's post D That's not even pre D D. Sorry, but yeah, the, 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 the old like as I read Fantastic Voyage, like I read one Asimov book. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I never really got into those things, not because they're bad or anything, but because I never really got into that. 
Sure, sure. Well, today we're discussing Elspreg de Camp's The Clocks of Araz. So uh, which edition of the book are you working with today? Um, I... Not sure because I got I found a I found an online like text edition. Let me see if the front page of it tells me uh, what edition it is. Is it uh, an it, ebook? It is. Yeah, it is yeah. not. Yeah, I don't have an edition listed. That's fine. But if you're working, you're just working with the current ebook of it. Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, I'm working with the 1983 paperback, and it has got the David B. Mattingly cover. So here, I guess we've got uh, Jorian um, hanging out with uh, the king. I don't know. This king looks a little bit more like a jolly Santa Claus than like a morbidly obese, um, in, uh, incompetent ruler. Yeah, I, I did feel the like, because I, I looked up the book covers. I always do that when I read books and things. I looked up the history of the book covers. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, like I was imagining like Baron Harkonnen style. Like, yes. you know, <laughs> and I'm like, he looks, he looks like, you know, slightly overweight, but probably He's jolly. very healthy, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so He's just like a bear that you could see like at the bar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I would go to a bar and hit on someone, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Hoy, what are you working with? I am reading with the Bane ebook compilation, which has all three Jorian stories. So it has the one that we read mm. before. Um, and then it has the third one, which is not technically part of our project, which is the Unbeheaded King. Um, I only realized it's part of a trilogy after I'd finished the book because I'm like, oh, it ends. Uh, hmm, it feels like there's going to be a sequel. And so I look it up and I'm like, because oh. <laughs> I was reading it and I'm like this pacing is very odd like are they going to squeeze him rescuing his wife in the last five pages what? <laughs> and then I'm like oh this makes sense this oh, makes yeah. a lot of sense now <laughs> cool well we'll start discussing the book in just a second but first we'll look at our high Gaxian word of the day white white and that's not W-H-I-T-E, that's W-I-G-H-T. And white appears throughout the book multiple times. Uh, the word white means a person of an unspecified kind, especially one regarded as unfortunate. And white appears throughout the book on um, page five. Here we have a character that says, if it make you happy, Master Zerlik, know that you're not the only stupid man in the room. I should have noticed this white as soon as I came in, but I was thinking of other things. So white is used throughout the book as just kind of like a miscellaneous person who's standing around. But I thought it was an interesting word specifically because it's something that in the D&D era has taken on a very specific meaning. Like now a white is a very specific kind of undead. I mean, I remember seeing the word white for the first time in the Fellowship of the Ring, mm -hmm. right? Because there's the thing about the barrel whites where they go yeah. to the barrows and there's this, there's actually a really cool poem, which is like, cold be body, cold be bone, something like that. Um, I remember that line specifically. That's the first time I'm like, ooh, what's a white? Because I read a Lord of the Ring in sixth grade or something, right? Seventh grade. Uh, and so I'm like, ooh, and, I, and that's where I got the picture of it as like an undead. And I actually never until recent, until like reading the book, I never 
questioned it as anything apart from this like folkloric monster because I know Tolkien is a folklorist. So I'm like, oh, this must be a folklore thing. So yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely. And that's what's funny about D and D is they take word. They took words like lich, which just meant corpse, right, or right. a word like bugbear, and they uh, and they attached a very specific uh, de- uh, description to these words. So now in the in the uh, in 2020, we all have a very clear idea of what a bugbear, a lich, or a white right. is. Right. But pro- pre pre uh, prior to Dungeons and Dragons, there was no mythological creature that we would all agree upon oh that's a white oh that's a lich oh that's a bugbear and that's hilarious because the first time i saw rakshasa in the monster manual it didn't click with me that it was actually the hindi sanskrit word i'm like oh they made up a random word rakshasa Um, and then it took me a sec to be like like it took me months when i was going back and i'm like wait a minute oh this is a Hindu demon. Right, Interesting. Right. And then it's causing problems now because some people have started talking about the word phylactery and mm-hmm. things like that, right? Because a phylactery is a contemporary use word, which is a, uh, a, a Jewish ritual object, right? Mm, right. Uh, it's, you, it's the thing that you wear around your wrist that has the prayers in it, right? Right, and the wrist um, and the forehead, yeah, with the little prayer. Right. And so a lot of people are like, it's kind of upsetting that this thing that I use in my current religious practice is associated with like evil demon soul jar, right? <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> right, right. So it's interesting thinking about like where, like you said, where... Yeah, especially the, the Rakshasa is like, it's just like a, a lion, a tiger smoking a pipe in a, in a robe in the... Right. In the <laughs> <laughs> when I saw it, um, it didn't click with me that what they were getting. It was like, oh, it's a rakshas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's like like things like mind flare. I love right the great words, but yeah, I, I feel we need to be more careful when using words like phylactery, which have current religious significance to people. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So we can head on into the library now. So what did you think of the clocks of Araz? So I did not like the book. Yeah, me neither. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, there were. Uh, the, I have two notes of things that I liked. Sorry, three notes of things that I liked, and lots of notes of things that I did not. Like. <laughs> um, then you and I are going to have a lot to talk about. Right, right. Well, we have an on, we have an ongoing joke that we try to make the worst fit between our guest and the book. So I think we succeeded this week. <laughs> Uh, in general, one thing I actually did appreciate, which uh, is you don't see as much in many of the fantasy books I read currently, is a sort of um, almost, not exactly, uh, slice of life-ish sort of plot structure. That's a bad term for it, but like a lot of like like mini quests happen, right? It's like uh, he's the, the this Jorian character is there in this kingdom, and lots of things keep happening, and that was kind of nice it, it wasn't just like and now we will find the dark lord right uh yeah. and everything so the, the, this like rhythm of it was actually kind of lovely uh i'm like okay this this rhythm is lovely and then there were two scenes that i actually thought was good um the the based on the book cover when joy was actually in the clock tower i actually really appreciated the description of the mechanisms of the clockwork mm-hmm. because i could have Im- 
reading the rest of the book, I could have imagined this uh, Sprague like rambling on for chapters and chapters about it. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be, you know, boring. But it, it was like concise and it was interesting in conjuring up the scene. And, and that one siege scene when they were on the rooftops or on the crenellations and they were kicking people off and, and things like that, that I felt was an effective um, fight scene that was, you know, nicely paced. Um Everything else in the book, I did not like. Let's and let's pause on that fight scene because I actually had a lot of issues with the internal logic of that particular portion of the book. Oh, oh you know, yeah, like, yeah. like for example, so like I, I get the idea. You know, it's like from from the outside perspective, like they wanted to um, weaken their forces by attacking on all four sides. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. So Jorian has this clever idea since they're all going to strike at the same time. Let's change our clocks. I'm like, okay, cool. On the surface, that works. But then I'm also thinking about it, like the four different camps on each side, the way that they're uh, setting this, um, um, this um, what is the word I'm looking for? Synchronized battle is yeah. by looking at the clocks. And I can guarantee you they're going to have a night long watch that's like making sure that there's nothing crazy going on. So they're going to notice that like, oh, suddenly these clocks just moved forward three hours. Yeah. And also like, I'm sorry, but if you just randomly change the clocks three hours, you're going to notice that like, oh, why are we all waking up later? Oh, why is the sun like set, right. like rising so much earlier than usual yeah. today? And like, and uh, if we're three armies, I can probably see the other army right, and right. be like, exactly. you're attacking now. We're supposed right. to be in communication. Yeah. We can right. hear that you're having a big war yeah. right around the corner. This is right. Why are you guys oh, the, doing that right, right. now? The, the macro of that fight does not work. I would say right. yeah. like the mic where yeah. on the on the roof the the action sequence was right. uh, that's where the book's it. relative realism sort of bites it in the butt right because exactly what you're saying about the clock if it was sort of more mythological like nobody believes the trojan horse would actually work right in in a real life story but if it's a very pitched at a very mythological level then you do believe it but yeah. since everything is sort of very practical and down to earth in this book yeah it was that scene was actually very interesting to me because it's one of the very few times where Sprague actually describes action while it is happening most of the book is actually reported speech so mm -hmm. I, I, which was i felt a weakness so it's hard to say it's a weakness because you know it's a product of its time and that might have been a popular storytelling thing then but a lot of the action in the book is actually oh and then did you know this happened last night and then i let me describe to you. It, it felt very it, it felt very weird to me it felt like a shakespearean play where because you can't show stuff on stage, you have to declare it aloud yeah. so that the audience, the way, you know, like, oh, take a look at this ca This castle has a pleasant seat. When right. shall we meet, meet to get right to like tell the audience? And, and, and Sprague right. seems to want to do that a lot rather than just say in the narrator's voice, this is what is happening. Which I yeah, right. it's the whole show don't tell thing, you know, right. and it's like he yeah. spends a lot of time telling and not a lot of time right. showing, which I would say actually is not really um, a, a, a common thing of its time. I think oftentimes a lot of kind of pulp writers were very much just like, let's go right to the action. And Elspreg DeCamp really kind of steps back from that and just like right. looking at it from a very clinical perspective. Right. And I think that's a very deliberate choice with this character. That he, this character is a raconteur, you know. That, that was another slightly irritating thing. So um, I'm blasphemous in that I really think uh, all the Lord of the Rings books can be shortened a lot. Oh, um, sure. 
Yeah. It's a lot. And like some of the Elvish poems in them are great. Some of them I'm like, I couldn't care less. Especially the ones yeah. that completely in Sindarin or Quenya. I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to translate this, right? Um, so I felt... I felt Sprague was trying to borrow on that, like, style. Like, ah, let me tell you these, like, stories. And, like, one or two, I'm like, okay, they're short. Sure, they're illuminating. This character knows about the past and, and his connection to the past. But after a while, I'm like, these these stories of past kings are getting very dull. Um, oh, yeah. Those are my least favorite parts. It's like, suddenly we're spending 12 pages of just Jorian telling you some goofy story and but also it's not even from jorian's perspective we're not even hearing him tell the story right. suddenly there's just a page break and then elspreg de camp spends 12 pages telling us this story and then there's another page break where, and then it's like uh king ishtabar laughed heartily ha 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 I'm like, yeah oh. and, and the, i think the way to if I were to plonk lots of stories into a story, I would either make them a bit more relevant to the plot, like having like foreshadowing or something, or use them to illuminate the characters a bit more. Like the characters think about the story, comment on them, talk about them, you know, moral of the story, something like that, right? It feels like he had all these stories he wanted to tell. It was a lost opportunity. He just plonked them in um, and... Um, they serve no real purpose apart from look at all these stories that exist in this world. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. And it may be that he was trying to do that what you're doing, but he just did not succeed. I think part of it, he is trying to build that the character Jorin is very um, talkative. Right, right, right. Which is why we should have had it from his voice then. Like, I want to hear if the whole point is that Jorian is like this great storyteller and like can completely change people's perspectives with his storytelling. I don't want to. I don't want to just know what the story was. I want to hear his telling of the story. Right, right. Well, yeah. I think where that that falls into is that that I don't know. I mean, obviously, we we never hung around with Elspeth de Camp, but I don't know to the extent that he was an oral communicator, or because he's a writer that he becomes written and then then therefore becomes a little bit mm, ossified like, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in the process. And that's because, like, talking about this character of Jorian, Jorian was very much, in my opinion, a what I think people call a Mary Sue, mm-hmm. um, right? It felt very much like Jorian. He is very eloquent. He is very handsome. He's really good at mechanics. He's also a brilliant general. He was an amazing king. He knows how to be a rogue and sneak around a lot. Like, well, how about this? Thing. On page 150, he is described as, as a man of mighty thews, active mind, and solid character. Yeah, it was, it was very, it was very, um, yeah. And then at one point, they even like go to, oh, and look at the size of his penis. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Everything about, like, even his penis is amazing. And I was like, this is a really boring character. Yeah. Here, here's that part. The gods have endowed him with length, but as for strength, well, the proof is in the pudding, they say. Wait, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, they say. <laughs> and, I'm uh. like, and I'm like, um, very boring character. Most of the characters in the book fell, felt a little flat. Like Jorian, yeah. they did develop his emotional interior a little bit, how they talk about his wife. And they actually did talk about, I appreciated this, but we'll talk about this later. It's another topic. How he's like, I like my wife, not necessarily just for her beauty, but I like being with her, right? So there were these some some glimpses into him, but for the most part, it was nothing. You also had this what seemed like a fairly major character at the beginning of the book, 
just vanish right, after right. the first like Zer- yeah Zerik or- like boop Zerik yeah yeah Zerik like Zerik uh, is there and then vanishes after doing this like bad thing and I'm like oh is it be interesting <laughs> facing him and he'll apologize or something will happen and then no nope, nope. he disappears <laughs> like at the end we're like oh we'll make him the head of something and I'm like what what he was he could have been an interesting character because he was very flawed right like right. he meant well but right. had this flaw of being super pompous. Right, super um, pompous, but, super very privileged, and not even aware of his privilege. Yeah, you so know? I'm like, oh, this will be you. Maybe you'll see a transformation of this character. Uh, nope, he just disappears, and I'm like, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think a big thing there is like maybe maybe I wouldn't even say Mary Sue. I would just go like full on male fantasy wish fulfillment. Like mm-hmm. that's a big thing that's happening here. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Elspreg de Camp and kind of his place in literary history. But one of the things that he's most famous for is he's basically the person who's responsible for why we all know who Conan is today. Uh, like he popularized the Conan book story. Yeah. So basically, he was obsessed with all the weird tales, Conan stories, and he's the one who got all of those uh, published in the 1960s and 1970s in paperback uh, form, which is the reason they exploded in popularity and like why we all why, why Conan is such like a popular figure now. It's really because Elspring Camp discovered him. Uh, I, I mean, Conan was still around, but, uh, but repopularized but, but him. He, yeah, he re- re- exactly he repopularized him by putting him into paperback, writing his own Conan stories, and also re-editing Howard's and all that stuff. But it's interesting that like he was so attracted to this like male fantasy wish fulfillment character, but then even in his own writing, he's still kind of doing his own kind of academic version of the male fantasy wish fulfillment. Where like he's still got like the mighty thews, but he's also smarter than everybody around and yeah. so charming yeah. and yeah. like. Everybody yeah. can like if he can if he can get you in a room and tell you a, tell you a story then like you will be like his to do whatever he wants with right right which is I mean talking about this male fantasy story is very interesting because of the very strong misogyny in this book right uh-huh. and, like there are literally two named female characters uh, one of them never appears right the first mention w- within like uh, of a woman is the wife. The first thing you say about the wife is how beautiful she was. And and yes, he tempers that by saying actually not just his beauty, but that's the first thing. And then the first woman character you actually see is 90 pages in, uh, at least in my edition of this 200 page book, right? So like halfway <laughs> through the book, you see a woman whose entire purpose literally is to be like, I want you to have sex with me. She entirely exists to have sex with this main character, right? Yep. In fact, her when people describe her, they talk only about two things which are commonly attributed to women in a misogynistic way. One, how she's catty and petty and hates this other person, which is the priest. Uh, and two, how she's ridiculously horny, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's her personality is that. And then when uh when he go her 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 little purpose is oh that her in the in the in the narrative as well as in the book, in the narrative, her purpose is to have sex with the king to like create the sacred right. So she is this vessel for the royal seed, right? And I'm like, this is the purpose of women in the society. Um and then when the sex scene comes. Uh, first off, we don't even see the sex scene. Oh wait, let, can I pause you for a quick second there? Because I yeah, actually yeah. have I have that part cued. Uh, so here is the sex scene in uh, that we're discussing now. Uh, the first try was not very successful. As a result of my year of virtuous conduct, I was like a crossbow on a hair trigger. 
Samet was disappointed, but I told her not to worry that with the respite, I shall be able to repeat my performance. So the next half hour, we ate and drank and talked of this and that. I told her of some of the deeds of King Fusinian. Then I was ready again, and this time I did a proper 50-stroke job. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's the thing, right? Again, uh, back to what we were saying before. First off, you don't see the sex scene. You see someone reporting the sex scene again, right? And And if it's funny to Camp thinks good sex is a proper 50-stroke job, I feel bad for anybody who ever had sex with Elspring to Camp. (laughs) Right, when it is a reported scene, a it's it sounds it, it, a it is not described in a sexy way at all, and b a proper great that's that's what you think good sex is. So interesting. Um, also, it's it, like counting it, how many times you brush your hair. It's like yeah, yeah. Like let me pay attention to how many strokes I'm giving you. This is my this is me having good sex with you. Um, yeah, and bad. and also if you read further, right. It goes again and again into how lusty this woman is and how she could, A, A, she was so horny she just couldn't get enough. B, she was so horny for Jory and she couldn't get enough of him, right? <laughs> yeah. And yep. so, so, again, the role of women in this story are as wives who are beautiful and as priestesses who exist in a culture to be sexed and to... uh uh, underscore the sexiness of men and the inherent horniness of women, right? Which which was incredibly offensive. I, I was like, this is awful. It, it, <laughs> I really did not like that. And in the same vein, there's this bizarre homophobic moment in the book that has no purpose whatsoever except to just be homo. Like, like Sprague is like, this book really needs some homophobia. Let me just put it in there. It has nothing to do with anything else. Like, like Jorian asks, perchance is the king queer? And then the 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 say the wizard is like, no, he has never been accused of such a sin or something like that. I don't remember the exact words he said. Yeah, and then Jorian's like, okay, then bye. And I'm like, what? So th- that never comes up again, really. Right. At one point, the king says, oh, the captain of the guard is handsome, but that's all. Right. It never, it's never a plot point. It's never like, oh, the people think he's gay, and in this society, it's not interesting. It's not good to be gay, so they want to you know, do something. Or the king can't perform really well because he's gay. Like That's vaguely hinted at, but I'm just reading into that, I feel. It's just, let's have a scene where the characters are just homophobic and right. then move on with that. And that, I mean, yeah. again me a lot at best that is is just a really long setup for jorian to eventually have sex with the with the priestess right because the king is supposed right. to and, fill, be like, and be like oh let me let me show you how a straight man is actually better than a gay right. man right, right. exactly because uh, i will get all 50 strokes in there which is clearly the magic number <laughs> right i mean if i have spoken to a lot of people who've had sex with a lot of straight men and anyway um so uh, <laughs> apart from that um it, it just felt a very like it literally felt like I need to show people that I don't like gay people so that my book will sell and to underscore the masculinity of this main character. Uh, so let me do it by denigrating, like le- by doing some queer bashing. Yay. And again, that was like, apart from the fact that it was, again, not relevant to the plot at all, it's also not a good thing to do because it's homophobic. So Yeah, I mean, I, at best, like I said, it's just a, a sort of clumsy setup for Jorian to later fulfill the duties of you know, being the king to, you know, f- playing the king's role with the priestess. Um, right. and, and again, similarly, there's this whole, um, 
I, I feel this is common in culture anyway. There's this titillating thing like, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, how his size is amazing and how she's so lusty. We're going to talk about sex that, ooh, it's sexy. We're not going to really show the sex scene at all because, oh, no, that's actually rude. And we're going to be sex negative about sex workers at the same time. There's this bit mm-hmm. where you talk about the he whores mincing down the street, which is a, a double helping. It's like a, it's like uh, it's like triple helping. Right? It's talking about like famphobia. It's talking about homophobia. It's talking about denigrating sex workers. So there's this weird a confluence of, oh, we want to be sexy, but not too sexy because sex is actually bad and only reserved for like over horny women. Um, so again, it's this, this is why I make anthologies like Honey and Hot Wax, right? It's an anthology of LARPs about sex because I want to like put forward the idea that, that like sex is natural and positive and good and can be represented in, in good ways, right? Um, yeah. Right. That's another like annoying thing about the book. No, I'm, I'm with you. Now, one thing I'm curious what you think about, uh, what did you think about this whole pants versus kilts thing? Because I actually, I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, because in the city, we've got these two main factions, the pants and the kilts. And in the book, Elspreg de Camp says the pants are the liberals and the kilts are the conservatives. Also, the pants... Um, they are the they're the blue team. the The kilts are the red team. So it's also not only is it liberal versus conservative, it's blue versus red. And when they're sitting in the big arena, the pants are sitting on the left, and the kilts are sitting on the right. So it's also left versus right. But then also something that I thought was really interesting, though, is that at one point he's discussing how the pants, who are supposedly the left blue liberals, they're actually the moderates. The real lefts are like this like radical party out there. And actually, I thought that was whether I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I also thought that was a really interesting parallel for modern contemporary politics. This whole idea that like the, the, the DNC is actually a very moderate organization and that the real left is like the Democratic Socialists or people like that. Um, I don't know. I found that I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but regardless from a, from a contemporary perspective, I thought that was interesting to read. What did you think about that? I, I thought that was actually an interesting piece of world building. There are there are some interesting pieces of world building in this in this book. Like I, I actually thought the the country that Joyan comes from that beheads the king every five years. Like yeah, I, and this whole like political alliances in this book, and it, it also made me think of uh, actually the 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 sporting event stuff. It made me think of um, uh, football yobos in England, right? Mm-hmm. Like violence that erupts from football rivalries in England. Um, I thought it was actually interesting that this like sporting thing is actually inflaming these political passions about the monarchy versus the legislative body. Uh, I thought that was an interesting thing, and I would have liked. I, I liked where, like, like I said, right? The I enjoyed some of the plot structure. So I liked the fact that there was this riot at one point, and they had to deal with that. Uh, I would have been very curious about the character Zerlik again, right? Because Zerlik is part of this old guard. And like, had we seen him again, what would he think? Is he going to change and think about modern stuff? So I really did think that was an interesting piece of world building. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think DeCamp is very versed in like the scope of history. And honestly, I like that he was not just drawing upon like sort of Northern European history for that. He's talking about like the Byzantine Empire and stuff like that. Um, but what I think he maybe has that fallacy of um, the cur- you know, that history or all things are progressive so that everything here is leading to the current day and the current day is both right. the most modern and, and the best possible thing and things right. in the past are a little bit off and primitive 
And, I mean, and so he, that, really ex- he has good scenes use that world building, but it isn't really explored that much. In fact, Jorian, the main character, is, is uninterested in that, right? He's like, I don't really care about this. I just want to save my wife in my bathtub, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is interesting. And it, it, yeah, because that's another cool thing. The, the, cop, the, the demon-possessed copper bathtub is in a flight through the air in. Like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> these moments of comedy in the book that I, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. I'm like, is this actually funny? Does it actually detract from the tone of the rest of the book? I wasn't entirely... Yeah. I, I don't know, right? Uh, and maybe I have to get used to that. Like, if I read all three books, which I'm absolutely not going to do. Um, Except, yeah, same. Because the, the third book is written after 1979, which is our, our, our where we draw yeah, our fine. line for this project. So I'm, I'm not reading the third one, but I did read yeah, the first one. I, I think maybe if I were to read them, I would find a more uh, unified tonal through line and live better with this these like weird comedic moments plonked in. Um, I more, think you would, but I don't think think it's necessarily worth the effort for you oh god so. no. <laughs> no, no totally and now it's probably a good time to start transitioning our conversation more to the gaming side so yeah. one thing i wanted to chat about Just is you know one in- last thing though oh please i did the one last thing because i was linked up what hoy said about the he's really knowledgeable about history is i disliked intensely his writing style of let me look up the most convoluted and arcane words to say the simplest things this happens again and again and again in the book not in a not in a way that works well like some rando is saying some random casual statement but has to say like guard well our impedimenta or like ah, oh no the vicissitudes of an irregular line i'm like you can use words like that in an intelligent and interesting way um but but Sprague seems to be like, I know a lot, and I know a lot of history. I know how to use a thesaurus, and I'm just going to plonk this everywhere. It sounded very, very ridiculous. So It's like, I, I desperately want you to think that I'm intelligent, so I'm going to include this kind of vocabulary. Yeah, it was it was really a ha- heavy-handed, and I'm like, yeah. it makes me think less of you as an author. Not right, me. I think it's nerd overcompensation. It's clear that he's a, 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 a nerd made good. I mean, he... And... You know, I don't think the less of them for it, but it's a, it's a it's a thing that we can fall into. You know, people who have identified as nerds at some point in their lives, like, oh, I know this thing, and I'm, let me tell you because oh, I'm not terrible at football or all these other things, but I know so much about sonar. Like, you know, that's it. Sonar. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. I grew up thinking that I was less than because I wasn't one of the cool one of the cool jock kids. But now that I'm an adult, I feel like I'm more th- I'm compensating. And now I'm more than because I have these things. Right. Uh, but that said, so Elspeth de Camp is listed in the appendix N as an author that Gary Gygax very specifically says you should read him uh, because Elspeth de Camp inspired Dungeons and Dragons. And you should read this to inspire your D&D, uh, your D&D games. He's very much specifically stated as somebody that you should read. Now, this particular title is not a specifically cited title, but it is part of a series where one of the t- where one of the titles is recommended. But I'm curious, while you were reading this, did anything from this feel like, oh, I can see how this was part of the through line that got us to Dungeons and Dragons? I mean, the idea of a sexy priestess who is actually mean is a trope that's everywhere, right? Like, <laughs> female sexy priestess, right? Oh, well, I've, I've not encountered the, that before. Well, she's, <laughs> generally, evil in this book right but they still allude to how she's vindictive and hates the other person and it's like that is definitely something uh that's there uh it's a virgin horror thing right uh this is maybe lots of gaming but like the unwant the king who doesn't want to be king or whatever is totally a thing um that's there the like 
companion who is like foppish again could that be part of the, like homophobia thing maybe but the like foppish companion is definitely a thing um uh but in games and specific i actually felt this book it diverged in many ways um from some of that because hmm, let me think uh there, there's the whole thing that he's an engineer uh, mm-hmm. as a primary thing was kind of different. He's not a wizard mm-hmm. or a warrior as a primary thing. I mean, again, like we said, he is a male power fantasy, so he's good at everything, but his he identifies as an engineer. Uh, that was interesting. Uh, the fact that they defeated the battle uh, not through, like, strength of arms, but through, like, trickery is something that's very different, while in a lot of these games, ultimately, it's about I've leveled up enough and I'm going to... I mean, I would. That's not a fair thing. In a lot of these games, it's easy to fall into the thing that I'm just very strong and I'll kill yeah, people. Yeah, right, exactly. I'll punch that problem until the problem's gone. Right. right. But I'm a DM, and clever players might force you, uh, force being the wrong word, but might uh, uh, make it make it so that you can use clever things. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was that was an interesting thing in the book. The, the, it was highlighting the fact that the Jorian won mainly because of his wits and not right, right. His, Which he, I do think is um. A through line to oh uh, i mean i want to use the word old school play but at play as it existed you know prior to say fifth edition or the more very more mechanical third edition which have a lot of mechanical incentives for certain kind of actions and there were less or mechanic- really just play style t- um, um prior to skill systems right right, right. and right, right. Right. right once you have skill systems you have very mechanical incentives to use those skills in a very more narrow narrow yep. way yeah then uh, sort of- there's a whole idea of like demons used to to do magic and to do tasks i don't know the history of that particular trope but i would imagine for a while demons is always like an antagonist kind of thing right while here and again i don't know the history i don't know the the state of the art in terms of demon use at that time um but this whole idea of like demons are used to do magic and they're you know we bound demons which I've always found kind of problematic because it brings to mind like slavery. Um, but you know, that's still a thing uh, right. that is used. Um, what else? Uh, the Actually, I do want to bring up sorry, a very brief point in the third book, which you're not going to read, is that they in fact strike upon that point. The demon comes up and is like, choose, why do you keep on bringing us up? Like, we're free hanging out on our planet here, and you keep on bringing us to this plane, right? And so, it actually is a point that he brings up in the third book. Okay. And the one book he recommends that we haven't read yet that's part of this series that will be the next book that we read from this is a book called The Fallible Fiend. And it's specifically a whole book about a demon who comes up from his his plane onto Novaria. And, and that demon is the protagonist of the book. That's really so it, right? It'll be interesting to see. What, and that's the book that Gary Gygax specifically recommended. Nice, nice. And you see that, that's like, if you've read the Amulet of Summer Gun, like the Bartimaeus trilogy by Jonathan Stroud, which is a popular YA book about a decade ago, um, it's all about like how the English English gentry enslave demons and how that's awful, right? Oh, uh, interesting. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so um, uh, yeah. So that comes in again. But uh, yeah, um, those are some of the things I think that that have maybe maybe also just the general aesthetic of this like swashbuckling hero character um, is just popular, like. Is you know by making another series about that, you're just expanding that um, idea again, which uh, you know um, is interesting because it now in contemporary American discourse we're talking a lot about the role of the community, right? Um, for a long time, 
we've seen like all movies that are all about the role of the lone hero, right? Right. The right. Exactly. And so now we're talking about communities and things a bit more. And so, of course, this is in that long tradition of like the role of the individual who saves the world, right? Like he saved the uh, city with the city because he had this one idea and then he did the thing with the clocks, um, uh, you know, thing, and he, you know, sexed the priestess and saved the king from becoming beheaded, um, even though the king died in the end, whatever. Um, so, yeah, that whole like individual being good at amazingly everything without help from others um, is part of uh, the power fantasy of gaming, which is not necessarily right. a bad thing. People need right. power fantasies, um, but it does, again, uh, spread that idea of the lone hero, like you said, Hoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that's definitely a a a common thing in most fantasy fiction of that time period. With say, the example, of the Lord of the Rings being the exception because that's a troop of people, mm-hmm. um, and so and where the hero is actually fallible, right? In the fallible, end, he right, does not right. drop the ring and has to like be attacked in order to drop the ring. Yeah, right, right, and um, and I wonder also because um, you know, sword and sorcery is primarily an American genre. And so then it taps into that, again, that American rugged individualism, you know, some of it may even be like myths of the West, Western being transplanted into a fantasy format. 100%, yeah. Um, whereas fantasy from, um, you know, other cultures or other background tropes might come up di- a little differently. I mean, even the sort of Viking, uh, you know, um, stuff like the Paul Anderson stuff, although it's, you know, written in English, there is the idea of, uh, fates and obligations and stuff like that, which are not as present in stuff that's like Conan stories, right? Conan yeah, doesn't really have a lot of individualist. You go yeah. and do what you want to do. Uh, right. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Um, right. And oh, oh, and the whole idea, and we're talking about this. We talk about this misogyny a lot. I mean, that carries into gaming, right? The whole right. idea of the what is the role of the woman, uh, a vessel for sex, uh, is you know again. Re, um, underlined by books like this and that continues yeah. the gaming because if you read that and you see no women warriors no women leaders no women anything all you see is lusty woman that's gonna inform your view of what a fantasy woman is like right because the right now a lot of people who object to all this are all like oh yeah that's not historically accurate in fact that's false right a lot of medievalists have come out and be like there were actually lots of women and queer people and people of color and stuff like that going on you are just informed of your false picture of a pseudo uh, medieval that comes through fantasy fiction, right? Um, and and that's all um, uh, there, partially because of things like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think that uh, going back and reading these kinds of things, I think can also really underline what's missing and what's wrong with contemporary gaming, and can then encourage and inform us and and um, to to see what it is that we want to change about games now. Yes, yes, I, you know, I, I think that can really underline a lot of that yeah, stuff. I would never say it keeping these books is not valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say this is a bad book. <laughs> this will, is a bad book. But I will I not think so. say reading it is bad, right? Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. Now, one thing that I thought was really interesting in this book as well is uh, they had this, uh, this the House of Learning. So they have this, like, they use this university that's divided into two parts. There's mm-hmm. the School of Spirit and the School of Matter. Mm-hmm. And the School of Spirit is, you know, doing like steampunk uh engineering and the school of uh the school of matter no, sorry, the school the school of spirit is like summoning demons and like getting them to like solve plagues and things like that 
And looking at like really old school gaming, you know, the the alignment system and like original Dungeons and Dragons is just law v chaos, mm. you know, and I kind of thought it would be interesting um, potentially to explore this in uh, in the idea of like, you know, science as law, magic as chaos and humans, we naturally want to exploit everything that we can. So as as a society, here we are in this in this kind of fantasy world, trying to use both while also kind of putting our blinders on to the fact that they're potentially incompatible and will destroy one another. Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, you see that trouble, like, you know, do you remember the famous video game Arcanum of Steamworks and Magic Obscura, right? One of the, like, darling RPG video games of, like, 2000s um, that had this literal dichotomy of magic versus science. I was, like, the main... Okay. Well, yeah. right? Um, I felt it's always interesting because whenever... Whenever um, a fictional world set that up, it does in a really weird way where magic is never made to, or rarely made to actually feel chaotic, right? The fact that you're codifying them into spells. Right, because of technology. Yeah, means you're putting a technology into magic. You are, right, ordering what you're calling a chaotic force. It is. It is is very different um, from, it is not very different from where putting rules and ordering natural laws. And I feel this book actually doesn't do a chaos versus order in that way because they make they take pains to show that these people who do magic have doctorates, right? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a university. So in this book, uh, magic is just another, just like Vancian magic, I feel, is a, uh, is, a ma- is a force that can be studied, that can be explained, yeah. that can be yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, while I would argue, um, uh, if you read the Abhorson trilogy, right, that like by Garth Nix, that's very much, um, you know, charter magic, which is order and free magic, which is chaos. And free magic is shown to be chaotic and dangerous and uncontrollable. And right. So well, from a gaming perspective, have you seen a gaming system that you feel like has a magic system that feels chaotic. Um, I think, uh, let's see, Invisible Sun does things okay. like that, right? I think uh, Mage, the original Mage. Mage, from, uh, I think yeah. Mage. Does that, Invisible Sun does it in a way where, for example, um, the Weaver character class, um, you're just given concepts like blood and the tower. And right. you combine them and you extrapolate what spell can I do with blood right. and the tower. Right, ah. I mean... It- there's like a variant system in GURPS where you basically there are no verbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you know, so you're you have the verbs, so your proficiency in the verb will let you say, okay, I have this is transform, and I have this that you right. know, and so. Um, right. And I would but, say maybe um, in the in the in 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 um, in crunchier systems, it uh, making magic that a player can use, making it chaotic is going against the system, right? Because crunchier system, the point is, can we can we um, represent and simulate things in a numerical way, right? right. Like Paolo Pedicini, he has a great talk at Indicate where he talks about uh, video games um, and the Protestant, uh, no, uh, video game, the spirit of capitalism, right? It's based on Max Weber, right? And he talks about games, especially video games, being um, 
rational, the rationalist aesthetic that mm. turning everything into numbers and mechanics is like the crystallization of rationalism. And so right. it's very hard to go against that in a system that's designed to use numbers in these RPG systems, which are you know related to video games. It's hard to make magic feel chaotic because the, the system is trying to make everything numerical. So maybe right, yeah. in story games, it's easier to make chaotic magic and magic uncontrollable. But in these crunchy role-playing games it is um it is all about codifying and, and making right, right. numerical let me circle back to a point that you brought there which is the academics in teaching magic here and maybe our conception of magic as being chaotic is actually more new than we think because if you think about all these people in the renaissance john d and all these people like that they thought of themselves as scholars right so even though they, they were practicing what we would call magic and so for them, there was no, not necessarily a hard distinction between magic and technology. And that is maybe more or more recent thing that we are bringing back into this. And maybe that's with. Oh, I agree 100 percent. That really feels like that's a product of sword and sorcery and like 1930s weird fiction. Like right. That really feels like that's something that's less than 100 years old. Right. right. There's that. And then the uncertainty within even our modern science of, uh, you know, modern physics post Einstein, you know. Uh, physics and you know uncertainty theorem and all that so that so that the idea of chaotic forces although i did just think of a counter argument to that which is the idea of like fairy magic you know like 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 the fae and elves and things like that are these like very strange creatures who will steal your children and replace them with fae creatures who are not the same like that feels very kind of uh threatening true. and chaotic true, true but it's 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 aspects of the natural world that we don't understand as opposed to the magic that we're talking about and, and, the magic and there are always rules on how to deal with them right like right. Mm. stop this from happening put a dish of milk outside right make sure you give the right gift and this is interesting right because Magic and science as a distinction is fairly new, right? Ancient Egyptian um, priests who are uh, medical scholars, right? Like ancient Egyptian doctors would feed you herbs and also whisper prayers to like Nephthys and while dowsing you with ass's milk, right? Uh, so, sure. So, so this the, for like magic was just another science way back when. It's another, we believe these forces exist in the world and we are going to understand them. Of course, if you bury a piece of lead with your enemy's name in mud, like your enemy will rot and atrophy. Right? It's just the way the world works. And <laughs> Everybody knows that. Right? It wasn't like, oh, that it's a magic while well, there's a science. And I, th I think you're right in that this whole dichotomy of magic versus science grew partially from magic versus religion mm -hmm. uh, uh, and partial, sorry, science versus religion. I'm sorry, like Copernicus and stuff. Like you, by doing this, we're going against, uh, you're being her heretical. Partially from there and partially from like the early, I would say exactly, science fiction of like science means one thing from the rationalist sphere. Like, um, like scientists mean this thing. I, I would, I would, I would guess this is me not being knowledgeable. Comes from things from the like the French Revolution and stuff, right? Where like rationalism is key. Um, mm -hmm. And and now authors like, oh, but what about this old uh, magical stuff? I would also argue it probably comes a bit of from exotic exotification, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, what are these exotic people from the past doing or from the East doing magic? Ooh, it right. is very different from the rational West. Ooh, you know, right. The, the orientalism, anything outside of the sphere, so is is chaos, right? So fairy is chaos, the the orient is chaos, 
all, all these things that yeah, are outside Africa's of our chaos. Right. Yeah. Um, so now, um, before we wrap this up, like, I love that you've got these like detailed notes. Is there something on your notes that you really wanted to discuss that we didn't get a chance to get to? Oh, most of my notes are very specific things from the book itself. Um, <laughs> uh, like literal examples of long words and rambling things. Uh, so I think actually, um, I think we got into all the stuff I covered. Yeah, all the stuff oh. I wrote down. Perfect, perfect. Well, um, it, are there any prod- projects that you're working on right now that people listening might want to know about? Yeah. Um, so um, uh, the main one that you mentioned briefly is Hanyan Hot Wax, an anthology of erotic art games. Uh, just released a couple of weeks ago from Pelgrane Press. It is an anthology of games uh, that explore sex through various lenses. Um, there are games about having sex. There are games about awkward teenagers getting the sex talk from their parents. You know, it's very diverse. Um, we also have a very diverse team uh, working on it. That was a pillar uh, of this design. We got two grants for a foundation to make this happen. And part of the proceeds of every sale is going towards sex-positive charities. So do check that right. out uh, on Pelgrane Press or on DriveThruRPG. Uh, and then I want to give a little shout out to an upcoming anthology I'm working on with Cleo Yansu Davis. We're co-editing another anthology called Strange Lusts, Strange Loves, an anthology of erotic uh, interactive fiction. Um, we're bringing together uh, some really well-known sci-fi fantasy authors, such as Natalia Theodorido, Anna Anthropy, uh, Nibedita Sen, and some others. Uh, to write interactive fiction, and we're doing this in partnership with Strange Horizons, uh, the really famous uh, literary magazine of speculative fiction. Uh, So check that out. We're going to kickstart that in September and October, and uh, it's going to be released uh, next year, and it's going to be really awesome. We have a really cool... Is that in traditional book media or is it some sort of uh, an online book. element to it? it or something? Like? is mainly an online magazine. They do do some print things. So it's going to be a, a website linked to their uh, magazine. And they, you know, they're a multi Hugo award winning. Right. Right. Cause I was thinking with the interaction nowadays, we'd have so many more powerful engines from that than just like flip to page 23. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, uh, we're using different, uh, a lot of the also using twine as a tool, but uh, we're open to using any of the other tools like Inkle or, or whatever that's out there. Um, there are many in form. Uh, yeah, the main thing is we're going to be interactive and they're going to be a game slash story that explores sex. And again, it doesn't mean they're pornographic. It doesn't mean that they're all about erotic stuff. They could be about like, what is it like having the experience of an abortion? Things like that. Um, so we're being very wide and broad um, and bringing in very well-known writers. That's this. a very interesting mandate. I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. Yeah. Now, if folks want to find you and your works online, what's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, the best is probably on Twitter. So uh, I'm Sharung Biswas on Twitter. Um, I have a link to my website on my Twitter. And also the, the website can lead you to my itch, which is Astrolingus. Um, it's a bit more obscure. Um, but uh, yeah, Twitter is probably the best way. And then you can check out my website from there. Uh, so that's Sharung Biswas on Twitter. Very cool. Awesome. And Hoy, how can folks find us? Right. If you want to give us some feedback, do send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at, at appendix underscore n. If you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club if you would like to show your support for this program. Uh, we'd like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. Thank you to Andy Action, Kurt Hockenberry, Noah Green, Adrian Romero, Matt Richards, Jeremy Harper, Demo Saklas, 
Uh, Ethan Schoonover and Dice Chioti, thank you very much for your support. Also want to give a shout out to Adam Stiers, who joined us before this recording for our patron book club. As a patron of our show, you are able to chat with us about the book before we record the episode with our special guest. So that's always a whole lot of fun. Uh, so, uh, Sharon, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was very fun. Yeah, absolutely. A huge pleasure. Thank you so much. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.